This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. When we read Parshat Nassau, we uh, encounter one of the longest parshiot in the whole Torah. Um, and it is not the length of the parsha which makes things difficult, but rather the range. When we read Parshat Nassau, we move from one topic to another, and the topics don't seem to be necessarily connected. And uh, the range, the range between one uh, Parsha and the next, between one uh, subject of interest and the next one, frequently seems to be so far that we don't, really don't get the connection. An example might be that in chapter 5, Parakei, we start dealing with Gezel Hager, uh, a case of financial misappropriation, um, lost objects. We'll, we'll get into it in a minute. We deal with Gezel Hager, and then the next minute we find ourselves talking about a suspected adulterous woman, the Sota, with all the technicalities of her, uh, of the way we deal with her. And the minute we finish with the Sota, an adulterous, suspected a woman who's had an affair, we suddenly find ourselves in the Parsha of the Nazir. Nazir, who is a, a man who makes himself sacred or sanctified by refraining from wine, refraining from contact with, um, with the dead. What could be the connection between these three different Parshiot, and why do they find themselves here in Sefer Bamidbar? So, uh, what we can see is that we lurch from topic to topic, moving from one to the other, and what we're going to try to do today is to establish some sense of unity in the parsha and to understand the amazing story which is told by Parsha Masol. In order to really tell that story, I think what we have to do is is go through the parsha and understand what's in it. So we're going to spend the next uh, few minutes charting out the content of Parsha Nassau, Parsha for Parsha. Uh, so bear with me. If you are in a place with a Hamash, you might want to follow. If not, I'll try and make it as clear as possible. And once we understand what is in it, then we will try and uh, put together the content into a coherent whole. So Parsha Nassau um, begins with the topic of the Levim. The Levites, the Levim, uh, we started counting them and organizing them in Parsha Bamidbar last week. And this continues with uh, the families of Gershon and Merari. Um, we start off the Parsha designating the various families of the Levites to their particular jobs. Now, of course, uh, the Levites are the buffer between the nation who are encamped in, uh, around the, the uh, Mishkan, or temple, or sanctuary. And uh, we've been told that Hazar HaKarevumat, anybody who comes too close to the temple, inappropriately, will, will die. And who's going to protect the temple? Who's going to be the guards for the sanctuary? The answer is the Levim. 
the Levites, they stand there in the middle, they function as the buffer zone between the nation and between the, uh, between the Mishkan. But it's not only that, the Mishkan has to be transported through the desert. Uh, every time that uh, the Israelites broke camp, the Levites, the Levim, would go and dismantle the uh, Mikdash, and they would, each, they, they would transport it, and when they reach the next destination, they are the ones who would set it up. And so we begin with counting the Bnei Gershon, who is one, Gershon is one of the families, and we're told that their role is to transport all of the different uh, coverings, the fabrics of the Mishkan, and then we deal with Bnei Merari, the last family of the Levim, who don't deal with the fabrics, the soft um, fabrics of the Mishkan, but they deal with the boards and all of the structural elements of the Mishkan. Their role is to uh, to transport this, and 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 that's how we uh, finish the uh, chapter four. Chapter four ends with counting all of the different uh, levim and setting them to their different tasks. That's topic number one of the parsha. The topic is the the uh, roles of the levim and uh, and they're being counted. Okay. Fine. Topic one. Topic two. Topic two is the is is very simple. Maybe before starting topic two, I should say that there are five halachic parshiot, five different paragraphs which deal with halacha here, and they make an interesting collection. The question how that we're going to deal with is how they relate to one another. Um, so let's deal with these. Uh, Five halachic parashiyot. I'll, I'll list them out. The first one is, after we've dealt with the Levites, the first one is about all of people who are impure have to be sent outside the camp. That's parasha one. Parasha two is what we'll call gezel hager. We'll get there. Parasha three, sota. Parasha four, nazir. Parasha five, birchat kohanim, the blessing of the, of the priests. Let's go through these parashiyot and make sure we understand what they're about. The first one, um, chapter 5, verse 1. Moshe Leimor Tzabe B'nei Yisrael B'yishalkum al-Machaneh kol tzarua v'chol zava v'chol tamein l'nefesh. Anybody who has a leprosy, anybody who is a zav, anybody who is um, coming into contact with the dead, should be sent outside the camp. Rashi immediately says that there are actually three camps. Um, within the Israelite camp, there is the camp of the people, Machane Israel, the camp of the Levites, Machane Leviah, the, ca- the camp of the actual sanctuary itself, and the fact that somebody who is coming into contact with the dead simply can't enter the sanctuary, but they can be in the regular camp. It is only the person who has tzara'at, who has leprosy, who must be ejected from the entire Israelite camp. Having said all of that, the principle is the same, which is that somebody who is in a particular state of impurity has to be ejected from the camp. And I think this makes a very fundamental comment that the camp itself is holy. So that's the first topic. The second topic is Gezel Hager. Gezel Hager is a a sort of difficult one. 
Um, what is it referring to? Let's uh, again read the Psukim. Daber ben Israel, Ish o Isha ki asumi kol chatot adam imol mal b'Hashem v'Oshma nevechni. Somebody who has done a sin um, and has trespassed against God and is guilty, when they confess their sin, they should return the guilty object with another fifth and give it to whoever it belongs to. What are we referring to? What is the topic here? We are enlightened uh, in Parshat uh, Vayikra. Vayikra Parakei gives us exactly the same situation with some critical detailing which helps us understand what's happening here. The Pasuk there in Vayikra Parakei says the following. Well, we'll try again. One, one more the existence of a deposit or something which was left with him, or he stole or oppressed his friends, or he found or matzavoida, he found a lost property, and he swore falsely, then if he sins and he is guilty, then he should return the stolen property with another fist. What's happening is very simple here. We have a situation in which, let's say, somebody leaves something with me. Somebody leaves, uh, decides to deposit an object with me. Somebody has something valuable. They go on vacation and they say, I'd like you to look after my camera. I'd like you to look after whatever it is. They come back from vacation and they say, can I have my camera back? And I say to them, what camera? What are you talking about? I don't remember any camera. Or I say to them even differently um, that, yes, I did have the camera, but it got stolen. And they're suspicious. They say this was a very expensive camera. It wouldn't have got stolen. Maybe the guy took it. So they accuse me that I've stolen their camera, that I've actually misappropriated their, their camera. Um, what they do is they make me take an oath, and I go to Beit Din, and I promise that I haven't taken their camera. But what if I did take their camera? I Not only did I steal the camera, but now I have sworn falsely. So now I'm... in in a big bind because not only have I stolen something I've sworn against God the Torah tells us that we have a get out clause and that if I decide to confess my sin I'm not in too deep trouble what I have to do is simply give them back the camera and another fifth another 25% as a sort of fine and there might be various sacrifices because I took God's name in vain and this is uh, an amazing an amazing clause that Judaism says that okay you had a moment of weakness you denied the existence of something but afterwards when your conscience nags you you are allowed to give the object back without too strong a penalty now what's this got to do with Gezel Hager our Parsha Nassau tells us the following let's say that a man deposited 
let's say, uh, money or whatever it is with me. I denied that I had the money, and I swore, and eventually um, I want to give it back, so I give it back with another fifth. What happens if the man is dead? Yes, I lied to this guy, but in the meantime, the person has passed from this world, and who do I give the, the, the money back to? So, what I meant to do, says the Parsha of Gezel HaGer, is give it to his relative. But what happens if there's no relative? What happens if there is no relative to give the thing back to? So the Parsha says, Lashem. You can give it back to God, but how do I give money or, or an object back to God? La Kohen. Give it to the Kohen. The coin is the surrogate for God. The coin is God's representative. If you have something you need to give back, if you have some crime that you need to repay, and the, in the meantime the person is dead, then give it to the Kohen. Now the rabbis say, but everybody's got a relative. Every Jew has a relative. If you don't have a parent, if you don't have children, then you have a cousin, you have a second cousin, a third cousin. Who has no relatives whatsoever? And the answer is, it is a convert. Only a convert who has recently converted and maybe never had children, then uh, they, they have no relatives in the Jewish people. And in that case, we say, who will be the, so to speak, relative of this convert? Who will pick up his tab? Who will represent him in this world even after he is gone? Answer, God, by means of the Kohen. The God takes up the cause of the the of the convert, and God's representative is the Kohen. Okay, so let's remind ourselves. <laughs> that was a bit complicated. We have the case of Gershon and Merari carrying the Mishka. Then we have the topic of um, sending people outside the camp. And then we have the topic of uh, Gezel Hager. What happens when I need to return stolen objects to somebody who's died, who has no relatives, the gazelle of the gear, then I give it to the Kohanim. Um, Alright. The next parsha is the parsha of Sota. Sota, once again, a very interesting parsha. Uh, we have a case of suspected adultery. Um, and maybe I'll just give some uh, a, a, a brief outline of what happens. The Sota is a case of when a man suspects his wife of having an affair, and she denies it, and um, he brings her to the temple, and there is an entire ceremony whereby they write out a, a a special curse, and they put it into the water, and she drinks it. If she drinks it, um, and she is guilty, then she experiences a curse. According to certain explanations, what happens to her is that it affects her reproductive system in such a way that she will not be able to bear children. However, if she is not guilty, then she will actually be blessed with a child. And um, some people have looked at the Parsha of Sota and found it a little bit, how should we say it, misogynist. The, the Parsha of Sota sounds rather cruel because all the power is in the hands of the husband. He can just simply trump up charges against his wife and suddenly his wife finds herself in this vulnerable situation in which she has to be carted off to the temple humiliated <clears throat> and undergo um, an ordeal of sorts 
Uh, the question is whether this is true. So I'd like to just refer a little bit to the rabbinic literature in this regard. First thing to say is that according to the rabbinic literature, the man can't simply make up make up these charges. Um, the, the background to this is that the man suspects his wife of having been consorting with another man, and he actually confronts her in front of two people and says, listen, I don't want you to um, be seen with this person. I don't want you to associate with this person anymore. I suspect you of having an affair. And she says, okay, she accepts it. And then there are witnesses which say that these two people go into a private location and come out, go in together and come out together. We don't know what happened in that private location. Um, and because there is no real witnesses, nobody's seen them up to anything, but she has um, you know, been warned by her husband, then her husband could accuse her. Now, here the woman is in no way has to agree to go to the temple. According to the halakha, she can turn around and say, listen, I'm not going to the temple, I'm not drinking that water, I'm very happy to have a divorce. In which case, he gives her a divorce, and it's over. Only if she want, wishes to remain with the, with the husband, does she go to the temple and undergo this entire ceremony. Now again, one could say, this is a very strange um, occurrence. Why would it be that, you know, we have a situation in which a, a woman is taken to the temple. Why is the Torah involving itself with these sorts of problems? And indeed, this parsha deals with them writing an entire curse, which includes God's name. And they actually erase God's names into the water. The ink which writes God's name is erased into the water. So very simply put, there is an amazing rabbinic statement which says that God would prefer to have his name erased in order to create peace between husband and wife. The sense here is, and I haven't got time to develop this theory, but I'll, I'll at, least, uh, at least state it, that there are certain times in which it is the word, the word of one person against another. Almost similar to Gezel Hager, uh, somebody comes along, a husband comes along and accuses a wife of, of of not being faithful. And who's going to know the truth? He thinks she hasn't been faithful. She says she has. There's no way to prove it because these things happen behind locked doors. And God says, you know what? Come to me. Come to my temple. Come to my sanctuary. Come to the Kohen. And the Kohen will turn around and engage in a ceremony. And... Uh, he says to the husband, if this will alleviate your fears, if this will alleviate your doubts about your wife, I'm happy for you to use my name however you like in order to create peace and to repair your marriage. That's the Parsha of Sota. The Parsha of Nazir uh, is, more, is more famous than Nazarite. The Parsha of Nazir is the case of somebody from the camp who decides that he wants to be particularly special. The phrase used all the time is that he is kadosh, he makes himself into a holy person, or he has the nazer, the crown of God, on him. The phrase used is um, um, nazer elokaval rosho, he has the crown of God on his head. On his head he actually lets his hair grow long and he doesn't have any 
wine, and he never becomes Tamein. The other person who's called Kadoshin has a nazer, a crown, he's actually the coin himself. It's almost like this person is becoming, this person is a person from the rank and file of the nation who wants to take on extra sanctity, almost like a elective Kohen. Usually a Kohen status is hereditary, but the Nazir is taking on extra sanctity. Just like a Kohen, he's not allowed to engage in contact with the dead. The Kohen is not allowed to drink wine while he's serving in the temple. He's not allowed to drink wine at any time, the Nazir. Almost saying that he wants to be in control all the time, he never wants to let down his guard. And I guess the non-cutting of his hair separates him out from the regular rank and file of the people. And therefore this is a person who wants to be especially sacred. That's the case of the Nazir. And the last thing is Birchat Kohanim, the fact that when God wants to bless the people, he does not bless Am Yisrael directly. He generates a blessing through the medium of the Kohanim. So, as I said in my opening remarks, we have an amazingly wide-ranging Parsha. We start off with the Leviim and their transportation of the Migdash. We move on to the sending away of the impure from the camp, the Gezel Hager, the Sota, the Nazir, and Birchat Kohanim. By the way, the rabbis tried to assess and evaluate the connections, and they came up with came out with interesting local local contact points between the different parshiot. So, for example, they say, why is Nazir next to Sotar? Because anybody who sees a Sotar be marched off to the temple and humiliated will say, I'm never going to have wine again. I'm never going to drink wine and sort of lower my guard. I am going to always be in control. And therefore, anybody who sees a Sotar bekilkula, a Sotar in her humiliation, Yazir Atzmonayayim will find himself taking a vow to keep away from wine. And uh, if you follow through the Ibn Ezra and the Rosh Bam in this week's Parsha, you will see many, many different connections between one Parsha and the next. The famous uh, phraseology being Lama Nisbacha Parsha X. No, why? Why is one Parsha next to the other? And they find various contacts. The Parsha ends off with a tremendously long chapter, chapter 7, which is also strange in its placing here. It's strange for a few reasons. The Parsha is the Chanukatam is Be'ach. The, all of the different princes of the tribes come along, and the princes of the tribes dedicate the newly built temple. Now the reason why this is strange is for two reasons. First, if you open chapter 7, we read it on Hanukkah as well. It contains the 12 paragraphs which are exactly the same, except for the opening line. It is a paragraph which enumerates all the gifts of the various princes. However, the princes bring exactly the same gift. This is true about Ruvain and Shimon and Gad and what have you. Twelve times read the same list. Why do we need to read the same list twelve times? That's the first peculiar thing about Perak Zion. The second peculiar thing is that we're going back in time. Sefer Bamidbar began in the second month of the second year. However, this takes us back a month to the first month of the second year. Why is Sefer Bamidbar backtracking in time? So just a word of explanation about 
Paraxion. What Paraxion does is describe the gifts of the Messiah, of the princes of the tribes, after the dedication of the temple. And it's very clear that they all decide to bring exactly the same gift. There is a sense of coordination and unity here. Well, what do I mean by that? If all of the princes bring exactly the same gift, then they have coordinated in advance. And the most natural thing would be for each tribe to want to uh, outdo the other one. For each uh, prince to turn around, you know, he's got an electorate, he's got uh, people who are his population. And for the prince of Shimon to turn around and bring just something a little bit extra in order to make himself stand out, how amazing he is, how he's leading Shimon in a nicer way than the leader of uh, Asher Uzzadunum. But they don't do this. Each of the princes of the tribes bring precisely the same thing. And this is a tremendous sense of the, tri the unity of the tribes, the unity of the tribal leaders. Nobody's trying to outshine the other. Nobody's trying to eclipse the other. Each is coming in celebration to dedicate their temple to dedicate the sanctuary with a sense of coordination, unity, and wholeness. And now, after I've described the entire parsha, the question is how this strange collection of laws comes together. And I'm going to try and uh, demonstrate the way that this forms a, an incredible story. But to do this, I have to go and do a little review of the first four chapters of Parashat Bamidbar. I believe that the first seven chapters of Bamidbar form a single unit. And uh, if I had to try and tell you what this unit is about, I would say the following. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Bamidbar count the camp of the, of the Israelites and describe the camp. We are transcribing a, the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness this is a camp which is meant to march, it is meant to move, it is meant to travel. And its focal point, at its hub, is the sanctuary, is the Mishkan. And around it are encamped the Jewish people. And the phrases which he used, as we described in Asher last week, Su'u et Rosh Koladat ben Israel, raise the heads of the people. Su'u, we'll come back to that word. And everybody is organized according to Galim, according to war camps, Degel Machane Ru'uvein, Degel Machane Ephraim. And in the middle of all of this is the Ohel Mo'ed, is the tent of meeting, is the sanctuary, is the Mishkan, the Nasa Ohel Mo'ed, We have described an amazing camp. At the hub is the Mishkan, all around it, the Levim, all around them is B'nai Yisrael. The next thing we do in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is describe the Levim themselves. How are they structured into three families? Who carries what? Gahat carry all of the sacred objects, Gershon carry all of the uh, curtains, Murari all of the uh, all of the boards and sockets. We've described who's there. But the question that we want to examine in Parshat Nasok is what is the interrelationship between the various different groups here? How does the um, outer camp, the periphery, B'nai Israel, how do they relate to the sanctuary? How does the Levium relate to the Kohanim? How do the Kohanim relate to the people? Now here we already have some clues. We've already been told that the role of the Levium is to act, as I mentioned before, as a buffer zone 
that uh, it is only the Levium who uh, erect and uh, who construct and uh, take down the Mishkan because Hazar HaKarevimat, anybody who comes too close will die. So we already know a little bit of the various functions. But our Parshiot in Parshat Nassau transcribe beautifully the relationship between one bit of the camp and the other. Let's, let's examine what we had. The first Parsha is, um, the first Halakhic Parsha, is that the camp itself, we have to send away those who are impure. Anybody who is leprous, who has leprosy, is out the camp. And what are we saying by that? We're saying something very simple and fundamental. We're saying that you might think that there is a holy bit of the camp, the sanctuary, but that the camp of Israel is simply mundane, secular, profane, uh, lacking kedusha. No. If you are impure, you are ejected outside the camp. If you are impure, you don't belong in the camp of Israel. And therefore, the first statement we're making is that even the camp of Israel bear a certain kedusha. The next parsha, Gezel Hager, deals when, when there is an individual who hasn't got an address. There is an Israelite convert. And uh, the question is, does somebody in the camp, what happens if you have an unattached individual, a convert, a ger, who will look after him? Is there a, anybody who can um, take up his claims to society? Gezel HaGer says, for sure. I will take up his claims, says God. And you know who I will send to uphold his financial rights? I will send my Kohen. In other words, the Kohen who lives at the epicenter of the camp, What's his role? His role is to look out for lost and lonely individuals in the camp. The role of the coin isn't only to serve God in the wonderful sanctuary at the centre, but when he sees a gear, when he sees a lost individual, individual without attachments, he has to go along and take up his case. He has to go along and represent him. In other words, the periphery bring its problems to the sanctuary, to the Kohen. And if this is true about the Gezah HaGer, it is also true about Sotah. Sotah is a case of a marital dispute between husband and wife. Husband accuses wife, wife denies it, but she can't prove anything. In our society, these two people would go to, I assume, a marriage counsellor to sort out their differences. The people would go and have to solve their problem within the camp, within the Machaner Israel. However, in this case, what does the Torah tell us? Bring your problems to the Machanesh You who live on the periphery, you who live in the camp of Israel, come to the hub, come to the epicenter, come to the Mishkan. God himself will help solve your problem. If the husband doesn't trust the wife, Hashem will construct a ceremony, a ritual, whereby it will be so clear that this woman is not guilty, that the husband will once again trust his, his spouse. So once again, the problems of the Machane Israel, the problems of the outer camp, are being solved with the inner camp. The Nazir too is the case of somebody who lives in the outer camp, in the camp of Israel, who somehow feels that that is not his role. This is a case of an Israelite who, who wants to be more like a Kohen, he wants to be more connected to the sacred, he wants to be more connected to... Um, he, he doesn't want to be in the spiritual humdrum of Machane Israel. He's looking for something more. Again, is there an answer? The answer is yes. Suddenly, you, even though you're not born a Kohen, can act in almost like a Kohen-like manner. You can say, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to be Kadosh Lashem, I'm going to wear God's crown, I'm going to never become impure, 
I am not going to drink wine and therefore um, lose control of my uh, of my consciousness. I am going to be a holy person dedicated to God. And therefore, Nazir facilitates the possibility that not only somebody who is born a Kohen can have special sanctity, but any average Israelite who decides and takes a particular vow will be able to take on restrictions, binding restrictions, which take them into a more holy state. And the last parsha is remarkable. It is Birchat Kohanim, the blessing of the Kohanim. And in Birchat Kohanim, uh, there's a particular word which comes up again. You remember, Parsha Bamidbar began, Su'uet Rosh Kaladat Ben Israel, lift up the heads of Israel. Here in Birchat Kohanim, we have Isa Hashem Panav Eidecha. Not only do we raise up our faces, or raise up our heads, that God raises his face to us. This reciprocal uh, language is particularly poignant. And I would say that Birchat Kohanim is quite amazing for the following reason. If God wants to bless the people, let him bless us directly. Let him bless Chaim and Yankel and Shlomi and whoever it is in the camp of Israel. But that's not the way he works. God sends his blessing to the camp through the conduit through the medium of the Kohanim. God's special bountiful blessing is bestowed on the camp, not directly by God shining his face on every person, but rather he uses the Kohanim to give the blessing to the people. What I'm saying is that these different parashiot are describing the amazing interrelationship between the various stratas, the various segments of the camp of Israel, We've described an amazing camp with three zones at the periphery, Machane Israel, inside Machane Leviyah, inside that, the Shechina with the, with the sanctuary. How do these three interact? All of these mitzvot come to describe the way that all of the different stratas of the camp can coordinate and transcribing the relationships between them. And this reaches a crescendo as we describe the way that the people in the outer camp, B'nai Israel, are able to come and acclaim God in the Mishkan itself. The national political representatives, the Nasim, are allowed to come, not as Kohanim bringing sacrifices, not as Moses with his prophecy, but merely to come along and bring gifts to the temple. Each Nasi brings exactly the same. They have pre-coordinated. There is a sense of unity in this Machane Israel. Uh, maybe we understand why Bilam says Why? Because indeed the Ohalecha Yaakov, the tents of Jacob, are unified. Nobody is trying to outshine the other one. Each one is excited and happy that God's sanctuary is in their midst and they come to welcome God with, with, with gifts. The most... Um, amazing line of the parsha is its final pasuk. Because after we've described this entire camp, the Machane Israel, the Machane Leviyah, the Machane Shekhinah, and the interrelationships between them, the unity of the camp of Israel, we see the final, the cherry on the cake. And it says here in Perak Zion, right at the end, in a very, very modest little pasuk, at the end of the parsha, it tells us that God's presence is in the camp of Israel. When Moshe enters the tent of meeting to speak to him, 
God's voice speaking from above the kaporet which is over the Ark of the Covenant we have described painstakingly we have transcribed we have charted out the camp of Israel this is a camp which is going to march to the land of Israel the land of Canaan it is a movable camp with God at its epicenter and the last part the last pasuk tells us very simply we have gone through this entire construction indeed God is at the center of the camp the Shekhinah is with us it is not only the camp of Israel but it is the camp of God and therefore the first seven chapters of Sefer Bar are describing this idyllic camp of Israel this amazing construction whereby we have this organized beautiful camp a sense of unity at the periphery unity in the camp of Israel and with God at the focal point of our camp. I wish everybody Shabbat Shalom.